Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 189, and today's guest is Nate Stewart, Chief Product Officer at Cockroach Labs. In these podcast interviews, you've probably heard me talk about my background in recruiting. I ran a search firm called Decero for several years, and product management was a core area of specialty. Thus, I was really excited to interview Nate, as he is one of the top product leaders in the tech industry, and it was an opportunity to really geek out on the topic of product management. We discussed lots of great topics related to this field, like how to determine if a career in product management is right for you, what are the key traits for a strong product manager, what a day in the life of a product leader looks like, and lots of others. In this episode of our podcast, we also cover Nate's appointment to the board of directors at Cockroach Labs and how this seems to be a growing trend of having more operating executives on the board at companies, a journey through his career, including his decision to attend business school at MIT Sloan and being part of the team that won the famous MIT 100K entrepreneurship competition, how Nate groomed his career into a product management leadership role at a startup, all the details on Cockroach Labs and its cloud-native distributed SQL database, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. We recently launched our new video section on VentureFizz, which is super exciting. But we also added two new categories of videos, career advice and hiring advice. You'll find lots of great content from our interviews, including the very topics that we discuss from this interview. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash videos to check it out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Nate. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Keith. So I'm excited to talk to you. You're the Chief Product Officer at Cockroach Labs. Uh, so we're going to get into the weeds of the company, your professional journey, and of course, a lot of just interesting information about product management. Um, but one thing that I noticed uh, recently is you were appointed to the board at Cockroach Labs, which, yes. you know, since, I don't know, I've been in the tech industry since 1998, and I always saw boards were like co-founders, maybe an external CEO, and investors. So I thought it was really cool that you know maybe this is a trend that's going to happen in the future of you know uh, strategic roles in a company representing uh, you know that company on the board. So so what's involved with the role, and then do you think it's something that should become more common? Yeah, I've, I've had a chance to work with our board over the last three years, you know, writing memos, brainstorming strategy, and it became clear that as we started to focus more on a, a product-led go-to-market, it could be valuable to have a product voice on the board on a more consistent basis. And the, the thinking was that, you know, the investors are really great at pattern matching. They can look across their portfolio companies and say, hey, here are the, the macro trends uh, that are happening. But by bringing me, a chief product officer, onto the board, I can start to talk about some of the things that are happening on the ground. Right? How are our customers' attitudes changing? What's happening in our competitive uh, environment? And how does that relate to our product and how well it's received? Even cultural issues around our move towards uh, more of a SaaS product. What are some of the organizational barriers that can make that successful or that could uh, hold us up? And so I can provide that voice. And collectively, between the founders, myself, and the investors, we can get to a, a sense of truth in terms of our opportunity in the market. Now, do you think, like, I, I see that's incredible value, right? Like, you know, because you, otherwise you were just like advising before the meeting or maybe you represented your team mm -hmm. at the meeting. 
actually I'm not exactly familiar with board meetings and how they're structured, but uh, I see the value. And do you think this is something like, I know you're not, you know, thinking deeply about the macro trends of this, but do you think this is something that might become more common? Cause I've seen it actually happening recently. I, I do think it'll become a little more common, especially as product is playing a larger role in go to market, right? There's this whole trend of product led growth and how you use the product itself to qualify leads and make your sales motion more effective. So I do think that product voice will be, uh, come more important. And there are also, like you said, uh, case studies that are starting to spring up. Cheryl Sandberg is probably the classic example of taking an executive and putting them on a board to have the right conversations in the room, yeah. or the right perspectives in the room. Well, let's talk about your background. So um, where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid? You know, the whole foundational stuff. Yeah, I, I grew up in Flint, Michigan. I was a curious kid, always interested in technology. I initially wanted to make video games. I thought I was going to be a video game animator until I realized I could not draw at all. So I was like, hey, I can, I can be a programmer. And you know, that's what led me ultimately to uh, computer science. So you attended the University of Michigan, great school, great computer science program too. Mm -hmm. uh, so so what, did you, what did you do afterwards? Yeah, so after the University of Michigan, I wanted to go to the city, right? So I went to New York and spent three years as a back-end engineer at Bloomberg. So building high-performance uh, portfolio analytics software for effectively bond traders or, or bond portfolio managers. And so it was a, a great experience to see what it was like to build production quality, to really understand the role of a developer and it also gave me a chance to have my first experience with uh, product managers and seeing, hey, there's this group of people that are saying, um, this is the direction that the, the product should go. They don't have to carry a pager. They don't have to get woken up in the middle of the night if a production system breaks, but they still um, can think about the problems we're solving and think about those end users. And I realized that that is a role that was uh, really interesting. So I spent uh, quite a bit of time trying to figure out how to break into product management. And that's ultimately what led me to uh, business school and ultimately my uh, start as a PM. So, so you went to Sloan, MIT Sloan, which mm -hmm. I'm like, wait, when I was doing my research on your background, I'm like, he won the 100K famous business plan competition. So, so what, what was that? Like, that's, that's such an accomplishment. Yeah, that was, it was a really great experience at MIT. And I think it foreshadowed some of the things that I would do at Cockroach Labs because the way this worked was there were a group of PhDs from the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab and the Media Lab, and they had this great technology for doing 3D gesture recognition, right? So instead of using a mouse or a touchscreen, how do you manipulate the space in front of a device to control what was happening? And so this could be used for things like wearables, for example, where you, know, you don't have a screen that you can uh, poke. And they had a great technology which had the benefit of working, but they didn't have a business model and they didn't know how to package or shape this technology into a product that people would actually want. And that's where I came in. And it was a great way to see how a great team of innovators could be combined with someone who had more of a product and customer focused lens and really build something that is valuable and something that could attract investment. So what'd you do after Sloan? After Sloan, I went to Microsoft at a really interesting time. So this was you know, the 2013, 2014 time where um, Satya was starting to take over from Steve Ballmer. 
And I was in the cloud and enterprise group. So really starting to see how Microsoft was making this big bet on the cloud, right? Office 365 was a thing, Azure was a thing. They were starting to think about how can they take their existing software, I'm not gonna call it empire, but software assets and translate those from this client server model to this uh, managed model. Which in 2013, uh, this, this is like disruptive for Microsoft. Like this is not like, hey, we're just gonna throw stuff in the crowd. I mean, this was like transforming their whole business. Yeah, this was the biggest change management exercise that I had ever seen or heard about, right? Being all in on the cloud when initially you were the, <laughs> the client server or the, the desktop uh, PC company. So it was, a, it was a huge change and seeing how do you need to adjust your organization? How do you need to adjust your incentive structures and the culture to support this mode? Just the idea of saying, hey, this is the last um, yearly release of Windows we're going to do. We're going to move to more of an incrementally uh, delivered model. Like those are fundamental changes and seeing how uh, Steve Ballmer and then ultimately Satya led that transition was a, a great learning experience for me. And, you know, I really think about my time at Microsoft is almost my third year of business school because I didn't join one team. I joined as a, a rotational hire. So I spent four month, months doing pricing and licensing and then I did uh, product marketing, and then I did operations, all in the realm of a cloud and enterprise. And that skill set really gave me a strong foundation for my, my later product work startups. Very cool. Yeah, those rotational programs are absolutely just perfect to get your foundation of your career set up and to expose you to different businesses and figure out what you want to do. So what, so what did you end up doing after Microsoft? Yeah, so after Microsoft, I was trying to find a a startup where I could join as maybe the first or second product manager. So I uh, ended up joining Percolate. It was a Series B marketing SaaS company. They just raised a round of uh, Sequoia. They had two uh, really strong uh, founders. And I helped grow that um, product and, and grow the team from, I think it was 150 to maybe 250 in terms of headcount. And we also raised a Series C along that time. And along the way, we hired a VP of products. So effectively my, or not effectively, my, my boss, this gentleman named Clay Tingley, and that was transformative for me because he was able to give me the best practices and the frameworks for thinking about not only product management, but also thinking about managing humans and how do you become a manager of uh, product managers. And that really accelerated my career as I went from a senior PM to a group product manager to a director. And that gave me a strong starting point for the work that I'm doing now at uh, Cockroach Labs. Perfect segue. So Cockroach Labs. Um, what, so let's talk about the company itself. Like, so, so what does Cockroach Labs do? Yeah, so Cockroach Labs is a, a database company. So we make a, a SQL database that makes it really easy to build scalable, resilient, and low latency applications and services. And I'm not going to assume your listeners know what <laughs> a SQL database is, but you know, databases, they're systems that store information and make it easy to retrieve it. And if you think about building a new application, so you're a developer, you have a new startup, maybe you're building some sort of an Instagram clone, right? You have images, you have likes, you have comments, and you need a place to store all those things. So the way this works, Historically, as you say, okay, I need a database. I'm going to run it in the cloud. I'm going to put it in a data center. And specifically, it's going to run on a machine in a data center. 
And there are a couple or a few fundamental problems with uh, doing this. Uh, the first is that it's running on a single machine. So if you need to make changes to your application, if you need to upgrade your database or the operating system it's running on, you're gonna have to bring your application offline, right? That means your end users, they're going to see downtime. You're going to see a um, down for maintenance window, which no one wants to see in 2020. The other problem is that as your Instagram clone gets more popular, you're going to start to strain that single machine. So then it's like, all right, well, you have to get a, a bigger machine. This is what you'd have to do with a MySQL or Postgres and Oracle. And you keep getting larger and larger machines. But the problem with doing that is your costs go up exponentially because the larger the machine, you know, it's not, it's not linear scaling, it's exponential scaling. And eventually you'll get to the biggest machine that say an Amazon offers, and then you're really out of luck. Then you really have to start spending a lot of engineering resources to get out of that, um, out of that trouble. And so, what we do at Cockroach is we say, hey, instead of going to larger and larger machines, what if you could just add small uh, commodity machines um, that could scale horizontally? So now if you need to double your capacity, you just double the number of machines. So now your costs don't go up by 5x, they'd only go up by 2x. And you don't have to worry about ever getting to the largest machine because you can just add hundreds of machines and support huge uh, traffic. Um, and again, going back to that idea of resiliency, now there's not a single point of failure. So if one of those machines go down, if Amazon decides to reset a virtual machine, your application is still online. Your, your customers don't know uh, what's going on. They can just focus on posting pictures and uh, doing likes or in comments and things like that. But what's particularly interesting about uh, Cockroach is that what happens when your, your customers aren't physically close to your, your data center. So let's say you started off in Amazon's East Coast data centers. What about your customers in Chicago or San Francisco or uh, the Asia Pacific region? The further they are away from that data center, the slower their application is going to be because the application still has to send requests all the way to the data center and the data has to come all the way back and you're gonna have these really slow applications. And so what Cockroach lets you do is say, hey, now that we have all these machines, there's no single point of failure, we can start to spread those machines around the country. We can spread those machines around the world and everyone who's using the application can get a, a, a local experience, a really high performance experience. And so those are the three big value propositions of Cockroach, this resiliency, the scalability, this ability to keep data physically close to users that make, us make it really compelling to our, our customers. So it just reminds me of what Akamai did for websites, right? With a CDN. So it's a CDN for, mm -hmm. for databases. So it's, it's fascinating how, you know, there's shifts of te technology. Um, so obviously pieces of technology need to shift along with whatever's happening in the world, but um, how there's just continuous advancements in databases, right? Like Dr. Michael Stonebreaker, like he's just constantly mm -hmm. building new databases. It just seems like there's this, this never ending need to make things either better, faster, cheaper, you know, there's all these different nuances and it just fascinates me. Mm -hmm. And what's been particularly interesting is we've been limited and, and we're throughout history, there are computer science limitations that just prevent you from building things the way that, that you would want to, right? So this idea of running on a single machine, there were some computer science limitations that said, hey, this is the way that we know how to make SQL databases work. And, then, you know, there was this NoSQL movement where it's like, all right, this single machine isn't going to work. We have to start to scale out in order to get to you know, cloud scale or web scale, quote unquote. But they couldn't figure out how to do that while also preserving SQL, right? They couldn't figure out how to do that while also pre preserving 
uh, data consistency. And so developers had to make a huge trade-off in order to get that scale, but that was just the state of the art. And so with Cockroach, we're taking advantage of another breakthrough in computer science, which is effectively a way to have these distributed, have a distributed system that can coordinate in a way where you don't have to give up SQL and you don't have to give up a data consistency. So you still get all of those great guarantees that an Oracle would provide, but you get the scale out benefits of a NoSQL system. So that's why we think of it as a cloud native database because we built it from the ground up to work in these distributed environments. So it's really like a, a no trade-off database. So what's the, the history, like how did the founders come up with the idea and then what at what stage was the company at when you joined? Yeah, so uh, the, the founders, they all spent time at Google wrestling with big data problems, big transactional uh, data problems. They weren't working on the, the Google Spanner team, which is really where some of these computer science innovations um, came to be, but they were inspired by the research that Google published around Spanner. They said, hey, as they started looking at their own startups after they left Google, they're like, you know, we, we want a database that works like Spanner. Like we know how to build these types of systems. The Google published how to do it. Let, let's figure out how to make an open source version of this. And the, the key breakthrough for um, that the founders made was that Google Spanner involves using atomic clocks to keep everything in sync. It's just like fancy hardware that only Google has or very few people have. That won't work in your traditional data center. You know, it, that's very difficult to do in one cloud or across clouds. So they figured out how to get those same guarantees using commodity uh, clocks. And so that was that was the the, the breakthrough that let uh, CockroachDB become a thing. So when I joined, it was May 2017. It was right before the 1.0 release. The the founding team and the early engineers had just proven that this thing could actually work, right? Like it was like, it, it wasn't obvious that they would be able to make this database um, support all the things that it was supposed to, but it, it, it had just stabilized and they were trying to figure out, okay, what comes next? We built something that can handle a lot of the workloads that Spanner can handle, but that was built for Google's use cases. What's next? Like what, what shape does this product need to take to be uh, a breakout product, to be that post Oracle uh, database and, and that's where I joined. So it was pre-product market fit, uh, pre-revenue, and you know, going back to that MIT 100K um, example, I had to figure out, in, you know, in partnership with the sales team, what do people want in 2020? We have this this stem cell, this you know, this database that can do a lot of things. How should we focus it to to get the biggest bang for for the buck? So when you joined the company, was there a product function, or is that still kind of led by the founders? Like how like or were you brought in to establish the product function? Yeah, so it was led by the, the founders. There was one product manager who was doing a mix of product management and customer success. And I, I was brought in to professionalize the, the product management function and start to, again, professionalize the way that we innovate and slowly navigate that path to product market fit. And like, what was it about the company that attracted you there? Like, were you like, hey, I've got my, you know, I've built my career to the point where I'm ready to lead product at a company. And here's, you know, just a great founding team, great technology, you know, all the check boxes. Yeah. So it, it came down to the, the founding team and the opportunity. So I had a couple of conversations with Spencer Kimball, the CEO and co-founder, and his passion for the project was really contagious. 
but was, what was also interesting was just the sheer size of the opportunity, the, the relational database market, like $50 billion. Oracle has the largest slice of that pie. And what's also true is there is this massive shift of IT spend from legacy systems and self-hosted or um, on-prem systems to the cloud, right? And so they figured out how to move a lot of their application tier to the cloud, but those databases were still in these Oracle installs. They were still in these legacy deployments. They hadn't figured out how to make that same shift for the database. And so if you could build a product that could run like Oracle, but in these cloud environments, that'd be a huge opportunity. That would be a chance to capture that $50 billion market with a uh, database purpose, purpose built for where that market was, was going. And so to me, that was a once in a generation opportunity. There are not that many times where you see these fundamental shifts in the way that people think about uh, computing. And so I, I definitely didn't want to miss that. And the customers, is it you know, something that Cockroach Labs can uh, accommodate any type of company? It's you know, not just enterprise. It's like you know, startups that are just kind of getting started. Like who's the typical customers? We see a mix of startups and enterprises. It really comes down to people that need that uh, resiliency, the scalability, or the, the low latency workloads. You know, we have large companies that take a, a DoorDash, for example, that's one of our um, recent uh, customers. And resiliency is very important to them. Think about COVID, people are um, ordering more, they're not leaving their house. And if they have downtime, that's a lot of lost revenue, right? And with the database architecture that they had before, they couldn't guarantee a, a no downtime deployment, which meant they were going to lose money every time one of those databases went offline. So they had to move to a new architecture and they ultimately moved to uh, Cockroach. But we also see startups that are either future-proofing. So it's like, hey, we know we're small now, but we're expecting to raise money. And maybe we've seen this, <laughs> this show before and we don't want to go into that, that scale-up approach, they want to start off with the right um, architecture. And we've also seen startups that just by the nature of their application, they're generating a lot of data. So, you know, one of our customers rubric, it's a, a backup and restore um, appliance, or they build a, a backup and restore appliance, they have a lot of machine generated data. So while, you know, there's this whole big data trend, which usually uh, ends up talking about analytics, we're also seeing transactional big data where you have all of this state that's generated by machines that is just too much for a traditional relational database to, to handle. And that creates an opportunity for cockroach, even for co companies that don't have that many human customers yet. Well, let's talk about the product team. So how has the product team evolved since you joined? Like what's it, like what falls under your umbrella as a chief product officer and how has you know, that team grown? Sure, so the product team started off as one other uh, product manager, they're around 25 people now. There are three main functions in product at Cockroach Labs. So there's your product management function. They're responsible for navigating that path to product market fit, generally setting the direction of the, the product and um, framing the problems where engineers and designs can come up with, uh, designers can come up with solutions. There is the product design team that's really thinking about the user experience. How do we help our customers you know, build the right mental models for working with a distributed SQL database? How can we provide that consumer grade experience, especially for our uh, SaaS product? And then there's our education team. 
right? And they are responsible for the documentation and our curriculum development for our online training platform. And similar to uh, design our documentation team, they're thinking about self-sufficiency. How can we help people understand how to use this product? Because this is a product for developers. You can't just look at a, a database and know how everything works. You do need to understand what's happening under the hood. And that's where the documentation team is so important. You know, if you want to talk about uh, product market fit, like we see cases where our customers see that something might be possible, but because it's not documented, they won't even use that category of functionality, right? So the design team, the product management team, and the documentation team, they all work hand in hand to make sure we're unlocking these new uh, use cases for our customers. I would think the design challenges are super complex too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, simple questions like, why is my query slow, right? Like, why is my application slow? That can, you know, it's one thing to answer that when you're running on a single machine, but what happens when a query is spread across multiple machines? What happens when some of those machines are an ocean away? Like, how can you uh, give people the right visualizations to think about network latency and which nodes are close to each other and how that's going to relate to why a query is slow? And next question is, all right, well, how do I make it fast again? Right? Those are huge uh, design problems. And they're, they're new design problems because it's a new type of database. So uh, our design team is really <laughs> excited about uh, solving some of these challenges. So based on what I've noticed, uh, Cockroach Labs recently raised funding, which is exciting. So talk about the growth plans ahead. Yeah, we just raised a, a Series D. It was really exciting, co-led by Altimeter and Bond. And with this additional capital, we want to accelerate our move towards uh, delivering CockroachDB as a service or Cockroach Cloud. Because what we are trying to do is to eliminate all barriers between developers and our value proposition. Developers don't want to run the, the database. They want Cockroach to run the database for them. But we don't want to stop at just a traditional database as a service where you say, hey, I want 10 nodes that have this many um, vCPUs. We want to say, what does it look like if we hide all complexity from developers? What if they don't have to worry about how many machines there are, how big the machines are? They just think they have an infinitely powerful and infinitely scalable database that can support their app, whether it's small or large. This is something, it's a trend that's called serverless where developers can just focus on the application and they don't have to worry about the implementation details. And this is one of the things that we're uh, planning to do, but we also need to make sure that we can support the, the go-to-market motion to support this uh, product-led growth. How can we build this serverless model while also using some of this funding to create a free tier, right? How can we subsidize the cost of hardware so developers can get started even with a global cluster for free, right? So that's the, the shift that we're making with the Series D, moving from the self-hosted approach to this primarily cloud approach. And uh, it's something that I'm really excited about. I know the team is as well. Very cool. Well, let's talk about product management. So um, it's not uncommon for an individual that has no background, like you had computer science degree, you worked as an engineer, you, you know, we're like, I'm going to become a product manager. You went to Sloan, you have this great career path that got you from A to B. So mm -hmm. if, if, if somebody is, um, let's say in investment banking or something unrelated, they go to B school, like, so my background is recruiting and then I would get, you know, a per because I specialize in product management, I would get a lot of people coming out of B school saying, I want to be a product manager. Um, what advice would you give to those individuals of how to actually land a job in product management and what type of job should they take? Should it be more of a Microsoft with 
you know, rotational program or a startup? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because it really comes down to why they want to get into product management. Like that's the first question because it's a, a sexy job title. It has the word management in it. People uh, like it, but you know, why, right? Are they interested in the design aspects of product management? Are they ask, are interested in the, the business aspects or the engineering aspects of product management? Because depending on the company you go to and depending on the team you go to, the, the product management role is completely different, right? Like if you look at product manager roles that say in Amazon, they tend to tend to be more like a, a general manager. Like they do tend to have more MBAs. They're thinking about the, the profit and loss of this particular area. Where if you look at a product manager at Facebook, they may be focused more on optimization of a smaller aspect of the, the product. Or at um, Cockroach, they may be a little more engineering focused and thinking about the developer persona. They may not have millions of users, but they may be thinking about thousands or hundreds of thousands of users. And those are completely different roles. So it's figuring out what are your personal goals and principles that you care about and where do you want your career to go from there? So I'd say that's the, that's the start. So what's a day in the life look like? I mean, because you're like the hub, right? You're interfacing with engineering, customer success, sales, you know, executive leadership, like you're in the, the, the whole, you know, you're the hub of the wheel. So what does a day in the life look like for, you know, a, a typical product executive? I'm sure your calendar's a mess. It's <laughs> just because you probably, yeah. but so, so what's it, what's a day in the life look like? Yeah. So at the executive level, I'm constantly figuring out how the, systems and the processes and the routines that really govern the, the product discipline, both product management, design, and education, how they're working as the, the company grows, right? So how well are we taking the inputs that we're getting from our customers or from our field team and translating that into a prioritized roadmap that's hopefully having an impact on the business? So I'm, I'm having one-on-ones with the, the team, understanding, all right, do I have the right talent in the, the right roles. I'm working with my product operations manager to uh, tweak some of our uh, processes. So, you know, how are people sending feature requests to us? How, you know, what, what contracts do we have with the rest of the organization if we need to do a scope change? And is that breaking as we add uh, a bigger customer success team or as we start to think about sales engineering or is that scaling okay? So I'm, I'm constantly tweaking the system and making sure that it's, it's scaling with the, the company, but also making sure that we're looking at the right uh, leading and lagging indicators to say, hey, are the decisions we're making actually improving the, the business? So that, that, that's one element. Um, the other element is the, I'll say the, the cheerleading and the emotional support, like representing the, the product among the, the sales team saying, hey, we hear you, sales leaders. This is how the, the product team is. Um, taking what we've heard from you and putting it into the roadmap or not putting it into the roadmap and starting to provide some color there. You know, some of those conversations, we definitely want to happen at the, the grassroots level, at the individual PM level, but sometimes it helps to have it, you know, to provide more, more air cover. And then the last big thing is just the general communication around the, the strategy, right? What are the big activities that we're taking on? What are the ones that we're going to avoid? And constantly repeating that and again providing the air cover um, highlighting those successes okay great this is why doordash moved to uh, cockroach and this is why 
that the cloud is making your lives easier, sellers, because now you're able to do more farming as opposed to taking a really long time with top-down sales, right? So the communication and the air cover is something I spend a lot of time doing as well. So it's a, it's a mixed bag, but I'm just always looking at the, the system, figuring out how can the product team effectively uh, run itself and again at increasingly large scales. So hiring product managers. So, so how do you evaluate talent to join the product management team? And how important is it to have domain experience? Yeah, so I tend to look more at potential or look more for potential than for previous product management or engineering experience. So who are the strong, who has strong leadership capabilities or communication capabilities or uh, great empathy for customers? That goes a long way when it comes to uh, having a, a strong foundation to build a, a PM skill set on top of. So that's one thing that I look at. The other thing though, you know, going to your point around domain expertise, it really depends on the role. Like in general, I prioritize people who can take a first principles approach to look at the information they have, really understand the core problems that people are asking, understanding how that fits into the context of our strategy and saying from there, how can we create the conditions where the right solutions will come out? So that means not necessarily saying, hey, I know for sure this is the solution, but given this problem, you know, giving our engineering team and our designers who should have their own ideas, how can we get to the best solution given this first principle understanding of the, the problem that we have? The, the tricky thing with domain experience is it's helpful if it translates to the, the current problem. It's like, oh yeah, you know, I've seen this before, this is how we solved it before, great. Yes, that can be a shortcut, but it, it may not get you to the right place, especially if you're building something fundamentally new, right? So for Cockroach, it's a distributed SQL database. Domain expertise in a, you know, a monolithic database may not translate. You know, domain expertise in a NoSQL database may not translate. Some of it may, some of it may not, but it's something to look at. There are cases where it does matter. So for example, um, the, the classic one I think of is like roles and permissions or security. Sometimes they're just right ways to secure something. They're just yeah. patterns that if you have the domain expertise, you can save a lot of time and, and heartache, but I, I don't prioritize it. Yeah. Like something regulatory, like healthcare or something like the domain experience can probably go very far. So, but yeah, I agree with the bigger picture that, you know, it's more of the aptitude and uh, that person's ability to learn quickly versus that domain experience, like you mentioned, um, you know, some of the other databases, what someone may be building wouldn't be applicable to Cockroach, so. Yeah, there's one uh, thing I'd like to add to that, which is, it's a, a life hack that I've realized over time, is that you can get the best of both worlds by hiring from other departments inside your company, right? So I love to hire from customer support, customer success, a, a professional services team, because they have domain expertise, but it's in our domain, right? They um, have customer empathy, but for our customers. And again, if you combine that with the leadership and the communication skills, that's a, a basis for a very strong uh, product manager. So that's fertile ground for recruiting, at least for me. So, so uh, as a product manager, like how does somebody stay, you know, on top of the trends? Like what, what should product managers be doing in terms of continuing to learn their craft? Yeah. This one, it's, a, it's tricky because every product manager is gonna have their own game, 
right? Do you want to be the product manager that's great at communication or the product manager that has become the domain expert or the one that's really good at getting the, the best out of uh, engineers? And so depending on what you want to optimize, your, your learning path is going to be a little bit different. So the I, I'm a fan of books. I know there's a ton of great blogs and articles, um, but the, the baseline books that I like are things like Inspired from uh, Marty Kagan or The Build Trap by Melissa Perry. But let's say that a, a product manager wants to improve their strategy. Like for, for their role and for their career asp aspirations, they know strategy is something they want to spend more time on. I, I love Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by, um, you know, the author's last name is Rummel. Um, that's a great one. The you know, if a, a product manager wants to get better at uh, communication and inspiring, there is uh, Made to Stick by Dan and Chip Heath, right? So depending on what your personal goals are and where your personal gaps are, you can figure out what are the areas to, to focus on. And uh, a great manager can help with that. Um, the other thing, though, in terms of macro trends and product management, there is this idea of product-led growth, which I alluded to earlier, the, the role that product is playing in accelerating sales cycles and accelerating uh, go-to-market. And so that is a big trend, like how can product management um, accelerate sales? But it's really a, a personal journey. So let's shift gears a little bit. Um, you know, so VentureFizz is an employment branding and recruitment platform. Uh, pretty much every company that I talk to, diversity and inclusion is you know, top of the radar as far as what they want to get better at. And I think this is a, you know, in technology, people are taking real action now. So what, what advice would you give to companies that are figuring out like, how, you know, how do we improve, you know, our diversity and inclusion initiatives in the company? Yeah. You know, the first thing that I look at is just transparency, right? Do you understand what your baseline is? It's not a foregone conclusion that, People will know how many or what percent underrepresented minorities or what the, the gender breakdown in their organization is. So just getting that baseline is important because you can't manage what you can't measure, or at least it's, it's very difficult to. Um, the other thing is recognizing that improving the diversity of a, a company is, is very difficult, right? Like it's easy to say, hey, there's a, a pipeline problem. Like, okay, well, what are you doing to build your own pipeline? Maybe you do have to spend a few more hours putting together networking events or putting together resume review sessions. And maybe it will take six months to a year to start to see the, the fruits of that labor, but it's going to be work and <laughs> recognizing that and signing up for that over the, the long term. And, you know, I like that you said diversity and inclusion because you don't get the benefits of diversity if those voices aren't being heard, right? If it's not an inclusive environment. So, looking and, and this is very difficult looking internally and figuring out what are the systemic issues that you have in your own your own organization in what areas are you not inclusive is it the language you're using is it the the types of social settings you have maybe it's a uh, a drinking culture right like that may not be inclusive for the types of uh, candidates that you want to attract um and lastly going back to the the first element around diversity, it's looking at each stage of your hiring process and figuring out, you know, where is bias creeping in, right? Is it at the resume review stage? Like, should you be reviewing resumes if you're not the hiring manager, right? Like, 
whether it's the, the name or what school they went to, that, that's a place where bias can creep in. Like what are the types of questions you're asking when you're just warming up the, the candidate? You know, hey, where are you from? What are your hobbies, right? That's the place where, where bias can creep in. So really auditing each step of that hiring phase and making sure that it's as fair and as uh, inclusive as possible. And that's great feedback. And like you said, it's, it's, it's hard, right? And so uh, David Cancel, one of the founders and CEO of Drift, you know, uh, he was on the podcast about a, I don't know, it was probably well over a year ago. And we were talking about diversity and inclusion. And, and you know, in the early, early days of the company, you know, they hired a recruiter, one of the most important hires, you know, early on. And Keith Pesco Salito, like he was like, you need to find a diverse pipeline. He's like, and it, you know, made his job harder, of course, because you know, the numbers aren't there yet. And hopefully that those numbers are improving, but it was a mandate. And obviously Drift has built a great culture of diversity and inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really like your point around doing it early because I do think there is a tipping point when you, very few people want to be the first person, right? Like whether it's a minority or a woman, you don't want to be the, the first person in a homogenous organization. Like it, it's a, seeing that is a great clue that it's not going to be inclusive, right? So if you can create that diverse organization early, it makes it easier um, as your organization grows. Absolutely. Outside of work, what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, well, that answer has changed over the last uh, few months <laughs> with COVID. Like I, I was an uh-huh. avid uh, tennis player and um, trying to play a little bit of golf, but now I, just, I do a lot of reading, right? Hanging out with my wife, reading books. I'm becoming a history buff. Like I, I used to read all the business books and those are getting repetitive. So now I'm starting to <laughs> just take a look back. You know, I'm, I just finished Why Nations Fail, which was uh, a super fascinating read, especially if you think about how some of those lessons can apply to organizations, right? <laughs> what incentives are you putting in place that are extractive versus uh, inclusive, right? How can you get every person to deliver their best work to create innovation over the, the long term? So, you know, that's what I do for fun. And of course, just binge watching Netflix. I just finished Ozark season three, which was fantastic. Isn't that, that was like the best show. Like, I, I mean, I was just blown away by, like I had heard of it, but when COVID first hit, my wife and I, like we were glued, like, you know, mm-hmm. those are, you know, an hour long episodes. We were like watching two or three a night and <laughs> right. we burned through all three seasons. And it, it, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but it's well worth your time to watch Ozark. Well I, worth it. <laughs> so good. Jason Bateman's such a great actor. I've just loved, you know, his, everything he does is great. So cool. Well, Nate, thanks so much for taking the time to, you know, walk us through your backgrounds, all the great things happening at Cockroach Labs. And of course, all the great, you know, advice for product managers to follow. Keith, thank you so much for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.